book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 6. Looking at Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses uh, 4 through 9. Excuse me if I struggle with my voice a little bit today. I'm still getting over whatever I had. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. This is uh, part of God's word that Jesus referred to when he was asked about uh, the greatest commandment, what the greatest commandment is. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's hard to exaggerate the profundity of this passage, frequently referred to as the Shema. The Shema is really a summary of a summary. We have just come through a series on a a summary of God's covenant with his people, summarized in the ten words or the ten commandments, summarizing what God has done for Israel in redeeming them out of bondage in Egypt and then giving them his law, directing how they are to live before him. And so all of God's commandments and all of God's covenant distilled down to ten words and now distilled down even further to just one commandment. And I don't know about you, but it causes my knees to shake a little bit when I honestly reflect upon what the greatest commandment requires. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. I find myself wondering, how? how? And maybe even sometimes trying to find exceptions to this seemingly comprehensive command. As I said, the passage is known as the Shema after its first word in, in Hebrew, which means hear or, or listen. And, and this passage, it not only contains one of the oldest creeds in the Bible, but according to Jesus, the greatest commandment. So we have it on good authority that this is the cream of the crop, as it were. This is the summary of all summaries. This is the greatest commandment. And at its heart, the Shema teaches us that the Lord is one and that he demands absolutely everything. 
The Lord is one, and he demands everything, but as we're going to see, he has given us even more. So let's consider together the greatest commandment, and I want to consider it in two parts, the greatest gift and the greatest commandment. I think it's easy to be overwhelmed by this commandment. It's easy to be overwhelmed because of what it requires if we take it seriously. It is overwhelming. The greatest commandment in all of Scripture is completely uncompromising. It demands absolutely everything because the Lord is one. Our allegiance, our love, our affection, our obedience, our service is to be directed singularly to this one and only God. The greatest commandment calls for one undivided, all-consuming commitment that radiates from the inside out, from the innermost depths of our hearts to the outermost extent of our lives. Nothing is left out of the picture. Everything is included. Nothing escapes the claim of this comprehensive commandment to love the Lord our God. Every fiber, every aspect of our being is included. And yet the thing that we must see, I think, is not simply that God demands everything, but again, that he gives even more. That is the main point of this passage. The Lord who is one demands absolutely everything, but he gives even more. For he is our God. That's how Moses puts it in verse 4 and in verse 5. He is the Lord your God. He is ours and we are his. He is the Lord your God. This is, this is the language that summarizes the reality that lies at the very heart of God's covenant with his people. So do not, do not miss the personal possessive pronouns. If you miss these possessive pronouns, you'll miss the whole point. Because these little drops of language contain an entire ocean of meaning. Here we discover the greatest gift within the greatest command. The Lord is our God. The Lord is your God. This possessive language gives us permission, brothers and sisters, to claim the infinite. These words give us permission to claim the infinite personal creator. The one we confessed a few moments ago who is perfect in every way. Who is all blessed, who is all sufficient, who is all powerful, who is all knowing and all good. These words give us permission to say with the psalmist, he is my God. He is our God. He is our chosen portion and cup. 
He is our inheritance, our rock, our shepherd, our king, our savior, and our song. We can say all of this because of this foundational confession that God is one and he is our God. And you see the deep and wide demands of the greatest commandment flow out of this even deeper and wider gift. The comprehensive command comes in the context of a covenant. See, the demand comes in the context of of a divine drama, a drama that leads God's people out of slavery through the wilderness of this world to a land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, milk and honey are the last words we reread in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 3, the verses building up to the giving of the greatest commandment. The last words we read are milk and honey, words that, that drip with the sweet nectar of divine generosity and goodness, then lead us directly to obedience. Do you see that? The good news of Israel's redemption out of slavery and being led into a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey is what leads to this comprehensive commandment to love the Lord with everything you are, with every fiber of your being. And so within the greatest commandment, we're being reminded of the greatest gift. Remember, before giving them this comprehensive commandment, God has already given them more than everything by giving them himself as their God. You see, this is, this is the logic of grace that overturns the logic of the ancient world and, to be honest, perhaps overturns many of our own assumptions. Because... <coughs> All of the gods of Egypt and all of the gods of Canaan demanded that you serve them in order that they would provide for you. They, the, the gods of the ancient world were essentially service providers. And it was, everything was quid pro quo, right? You want this, you got to do that. This for that is how it worked. But here in Deuteronomy 6... We are talking about a God who brought Israel out of Egypt by grace. Not because of anything special in the people of Israel, but according to divine promise. And in verses 1 through 3, we're reminded that God is going to give them land. And then in verse 10, not just land, but abundant provisions in the land storehouses and cities and vineyards and fortresses, things they did not build and things they did not earn. So here's this stark reality that confronts us again and again in the scriptures, that you, you cannot ever give something to God before he has given to you. And the greatest gift of all, this is the, this is the reality of what it means to be redeemed by God that we really need to come to appreciate, the greatest gift of all was not Israel's redemption out of slavery in Egypt. 
And the greatest gift of all was not the land flowing with milk and honey and all of the abundant provisions that were being given to them there. The greatest gift of all is that God had redeemed them and was bringing them into this good and spacious land to dwell in their midst as their God. That was the greatest gift. Now let's, let's just reflect for a few minutes in more detail on the greatest commandment, this ancient creed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Each word, I, I really think, needs to be savored for a moment. And first of all, notice that it begins with the word hear, the call to listen, to have an open ear. Hearing, when you think about it, is it's not, it's not a giving activity, is it? It's a receptive activity. When we're listening, we're, we're receiving. You take something in. And, and this is another version of what Deuteronomy has already said and will continue to say again and again. Listen that you may live. Listen and live is really a, a, a summary of the message of Deuteronomy as a whole. Listen and live in great, grateful response to the word of God's grace. See, friends, we cannot give ourselves to God before we have first heard the good news that God has given himself to us to be our God. And that's exactly what we hear summed up in the Shema, that God is our God. And as a people who are free indeed, we live to serve him. A second, notice that these words are specifically directed to Israel, God's covenant people, people who have already been brought out of slavery and bound in covenant to the Lord, which the prophets later on describe in terms of a marriage covenant. <laughs> now, it's true that all people everywhere are obligated to obey God by virtue of the creator-creature relationship. But the greatest commandment we need to recognize, again, is given in the context of a gracious covenant. And it's a word that is spoken to the people of God, people who have already received the greatest gift. And so we should never distort the Shema into some kind of message that this is God commanding people to somehow earn their salvation by a life of obedience. No, it, it is instead a call to the redeemed people of God to enjoy their salvation and to work it out. Now third, notice, notice the climatic theological claim at the end of verse 4 that the Lord is one. That is a remarkable statement. It is a remarkable statement because it stands in direct opposition to the polytheism in Egypt and where they've just come. <laughs> and it stands in direct opposition to the polytheism of Canaan where they're about to go. And we need to appreciate this. It, it also stands in, in stark contrast to the pluralism of our own society. Going back to Egypt, Egypt had a God for, for everything. There were signs and symbols of gods here, there, and everywhere. Everywhere you looked, and things were the same in Canaan. And so between Egypt and Canaan, these two places immersed in polytheism, God tells his people, 
that he is one. So we should ask the question, what, is, what did that mean for the Israelites then, and what, what does it mean for us today? We've got we've to reflect, I think, on what God's meant and how they related to people in the ancient world. Okay, think, about, think about all your monthly bills. This is a helpful way of, of <clears throat> reflecting on this. Right? You've got your, your health insurance, your car insurance, uh, your mortgage, your utilities, electric and water and sewage and so forth. It's not going to do you a whole lot of good if you say to your mortgage provider, well, hey, look, I, I, I paid my sewage bill this month, <laughs> right? Because they are all distinct service providers who all want a piece of you. They're distinct service providers, and they all want their own piece of the pie. That's essentially what the gods of the ancient world were like. The gods of fertility, the god of the harvest, the god of the sun, and rain and health and, and wealth and so on, they each provided a service and they each demanded their own service. And in that world, Moses delivers this astounding creed. In contrast to all of these false pantheons of deities, there is but one God. Now think about what that means practically for our own lives. In a lot of ways, the times in which we live are different from ancient Egypt and Canaan, and then in a lot of ways, they're the same. Um, we, we live in, in a world full of idols. And those idols pull us in countless directions, and frankly, they pull us apart. We are called to serve innumerable little lords. So many little gods, and they all want piece of us. The God of money, the God of success, the God of respectability, the God of sex, the God of pleasure, the God of politics, the God of power, the God of fertility and comfort, and on and on and on and on we could go. And when we serve them, they tear us to pieces. They work us to death, just like Pharaoh did the Israelites. But the truth of one Lord, you see, is the unifying reality that we all so desperately need. We, we were not made. We were not constructed by the creator to serve a pantheon of false deities. We were not made to bow down to countless idols. We were made to serve the one living and true God. And when we do, it unifies all of life. And friends, that is a gift. That is a gift. As Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 8. Read the passage a few moments ago. For us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, I said the Shema is a remarkable statement. This is this is perhaps even more remarkable because it explains the Shema in the light of the full revelation of God through the gospel. Paul, Paul is deliberately citing the Shema here in 1 Corinthians 8 and he's expounding 
its meaning to us. And he's saying there is one God, and he's identifying that God, the, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. He places their names right alongside one another. Now just think about Paul for a minute. Every, every morning and evening he would have prayed the Shema. Shema Israel, Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Again and again and again he said this for years and years. And then one day he saw the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. And it changed him. It changed the way that he understood the unity of God. For, for Paul and for us, there is one God, the Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, of course, could say, and the Holy Spirit. As Jesus explains the name in the Great Commission. You remember what he says when he says, baptize the nations in the name, singular, in the covenant name of Yahweh, of, in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And did you notice as I was reading 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says that we exist for this one God. This is what life is all about. <laughs> there are many competing narratives about what life is ultimately all about. Perhaps the most dominant one in our society today is you determine <laughs> what your life is all about. You determine what um, the meaning of your existence is. Well, Paul is saying, no, God is the reason we exist. Your body, your life, your everything is for the Lord. He is the unifying purpose of it all. This one God who demands everything, but has given us even more in his crucified and risen son. There's, a, there's an important theological question that some of us might be thinking about right now, so let me just try to quickly address it. Some of us might be wondering, how can Christians believe God is one and also believe in the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three in one? Well, the answer to that question, it can be found in a variety of ways in different passages throughout the Bible, but one, one helpful place to go that I'd point you to is Ephesians chapter 4 verses 4 and 6 and I'll, I'll read those verses to you now just listen as you hear Paul listen to the unity and the distinction that is at work here Paul says there is one body and one spirit just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call one Lord one faith one baptism one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul's, Paul's confession there in Ephesians 4, once again, I think is a clear echo of the Shema. It's <clears throat> shaped by that ancient creed and its emphasis on one God. In fact, Paul uses the word one seven times in the span of those verses, and I don't think that's an insignificant thing. Paul uses the word one seven times to highlight the fact that he's talking here about a perfect oneness. And yet, even as he uses the word one seven times, did you notice that there emerges a trinity within the unity of the one God? One spirit, one Lord, one God and Father 
of all, unity and distinction that gives rise to the church's worship and faith and life. See, the triune God who who gives himself brings us to the greatest commandment and makes us ready and willing to obey. If you think about it, if, 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 if he doesn't, if the gift of God himself doesn't do that, then what will, right? If the gift of God himself doesn't make you want to love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might, then nothing else will. The greatest commandment calls us to love our one Lord with everything that we are. God does not call for tokenism, friends. God calls for the totality of our lives. You know, over and against what your investment advisor may tell you to diversify your accounts, <coughs> over and against every intuition we might have to, I don't know, diversify our religious portfolio, here we are told to put all of our eggs into one basket. To invest your whole self, your entirety, to the love of the Lord your God. There's no hedging your bets here. You put all of your love in one place. Remember, Jesus not only quoted this passage, he also He also extended it. Do you remember how he added a fourth element when he was talking about loving the Lord your God? That you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, between that with all of your mind. we We could have a whole message reflecting on those different aspects of what makes us us. But I'm going to focus today on the main point. The main point of the passage here, while we can distinguish between those things, the main point is that you love God with everything. With everything that you are. All of it is devoted to him. Your thoughts, your desires, your affections, your will, your life, your strength. All of it is offered in love to the one true God. Don't hold anything back. You know, we have this tendency, don't we, to, to compartmentalize. To, in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives, give perhaps this portion of ourselves over to God and reserve other bits and pieces of our lives and say, no, 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 no. Um, you're not welcome there. And the Shema just obliterates that and says, because God is one, Your life, your love, your devotion must also be one and singular. Now, this is what the greatest commandment demands, but one other lesson that we need to cover here is we learn from these verses is is to truly hear and obey the greatest command. It necessarily results in sharing the love of God with our children. You see that in the final verses of this passage. The good news about the redeeming love of God and the sweet 
nectar of his commandments is passed on from generation to generation. Do you see the movement here? It starts in the heart and it ends at the gate. It it radiates not only individually but intergenerationally. God wants his word in our hearts and then he wants us to speak that word to our children. This is God's ordinary way of growing and multiplying his people through the hearing and speaking of his word. And this is a pattern that applies in in different contexts. We see it, the, the same pattern at work for growth in the church. If we go back to Ephesians for a minute, Paul prays that the people of God would be filled with all the fullness of God in Ephesians 3. And he talks about how, how the risen Christ gives gifts to men. He gives shepherd teachers. And the people of God are equipped and built up in maturity through the speaking of the truth to one another in love. And we see a similar movement here for domestic life in Deuteronomy chapter 6, from hearing to speaking. So let's just think briefly about this, what this means for us as a church and what it means for us as as families. First, as a church, at the the very least, this, this means that we need to be a people committed to hearing the word of the Lord. We need to be a people with listening ears. We need to be a people who are attentive. And I use that word very deliberately because attentiveness is, it's not a very common thing today, is it? We live in an age of distraction and God calls his people to be a people who listen. People who are attentive to his, his word. But but not just hearing for the sake of hearing. Not just hearing for the sake of learning some new information. Not just hearing to scratch an intellectual itch. Not just hearing because we like to talk about theology and look down on other people. But hearing because we want the word of God To be on our hearts. In other words, we want the word of God to be at the very control center of our lives. Directing our thoughts and our affections and our conduct. And part of living out the the word, the teaching of the Lord. Again, according to this passage, means telling our kids about what God has done. And teaching them his commandments. This is not just a domestic responsibility. It is part of the church's responsibility as well. To teach and disciple the children and young people of Trinity Presbyterian Church. And friends, if you you just take a look at our church right now, one of the things that at least stands out to me in recent years is that God has blessed us with lots and lots of kids. Praise God for that. Each and every one of them is a blessing. And I, I want to make clear to them, to, to, to the kids and youth here, that our desire for you is that you know and love the Lord with all of your heart. That, that is what I long for. It's what I pray for as your pastor. One of the things I 
regularly find myself praying for is that if God's will is for me to be here for the next 30 or 40 years, that when I'm old and already decaying in some ways, when many of us have, if the Lord Terry's already gone to be with the Lord, that those of you who are the youngest among us right now would be godly, mature leaders in this church, raising families of your own to know and love the Lord and serve him. And God's ordinary way of bringing that about from generation to generation is through older generations speaking and living the word to the next, for the next. point I'm, I'm really laboring to make here this morning Before we think about domestic responsibilities in the light of the Shema, we have to recognize, brothers and sisters, that kids need the church, not just their parents. As fundamental and essential as the role of parents is, children of the covenant need a community of people who speak the truth and live it out together in order to actually understand what it means to trust and follow the Lord. I think too often today, when we think about Christian formation, we reduce it to a matter of information transfer. And to be sure, the passing along of truth, teaching doctrine, is important and essential in the work of discipleship. But right alongside of that is what historically and traditionally has been called mentorship. Not only teaching verbally, but teaching by example. By investing in others, by living out your faith before the eyes of another. This is part and parcel of the church's work and responsibility in training up the next generation to know and love and serve the Lord. However, I I think in an age where the church... Uh, we can talk about this later if you disagree with me, but I think we live in an age where we are tempted in the church to try to resolve everything with another ministry. If we just had a ministry for that, this need would be met. And I I think we we can maybe be guilty of that when it comes to the discipleship of our children. I'm not talking about Trinity in particular. I'm talking about the church in general today. And don't mishear me, I'm not saying that a ministry to children or youth is a, is a bad thing. It's a profoundly good thing. And I am, I am so very grateful for all of you who are invested in the teaching and training of our children here at Trinity. And I urge parents to make those ministries a priority and to, and to take advantage of them. But I, but I worry that by having an official ministry, that as a congregation, we might think we're off the hook. (laughs) I'm convinced that what the Lord wants from his people is not just another ministry. It's, It's far more organic than that. It's a community of people committed to speaking the truth to one another in love, where the older generation set an example for the younger of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'll I'll use myself as an example. I've shared this parts of this story with you before, but when I was a 
teenager, I had an older godly man who just made himself available and invested in me. Some of you know we would get together and we would run uh, five days a week, sometimes six days a week. At 6 a.m., we were there until 7 a.m. We were running together every day of the week except Sunday, talking about the things of the Lord. And over time, I grew more and more comfortable. I knew I could ask him questions. I knew I could share my struggles with him. I, I knew that we could have personal conversations with one another, and he really had my best interest at heart. And I, I can't exaggerate how profoundly that relationship impacted my life. I'm not, just try, I'm not trying to make an argument here from you know, my subjective experience. I, I don't think we can read through the scriptures honestly and faithfully and, and fail to realize that you know, life-on-life relationships is a fundamental part of training up the next generation. When you think about Paul, older women teaching younger women, older men training younger men, Jesus calling 12 disciples and living life with them, Paul sharing his life with his protege, Timothy, Right? These kind of relationships are fundamental to discipling the coming generations. Just imagine what it would, what the influence that a church might have on future generations if older, more mature believers identified a younger person in the church and made a commitment to regularly talk to them beyond, hey, how are you? Right? And, and, and pray with them. Send them, send them notes of encouragement. Get involved in their lives in appropriate ways. And, and talk to them about the things of the Lord. Be a resource of wisdom in their lives. I better say something here before we wrap up about the implications of the Shema for domestic life. Because I, I went down that other trail for too long. So let's come back here. Uh, since domestic life is the immediate focus here in Deuteronomy 6, we read in verse 7, <coughs> you shall teach them, your children, and you shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You see, it's, it's, it's a picture of the rhythms of daily life punctuated by conversations about the Lord, teaching about God. The picture painted here is of parents and older believers talking to children about the Lord every day because the word of the Lord is on their hearts. It's, it's what comes out of their mouth because it's, it's what consumes them. Now, Let's not make this more complicated than it is, and let's not read this in a wooden literal fashion as was sometimes done in the Jewish tradition. This passage teaches us, very simply, to use the rhythms and routines of daily life as opportunities to talk to our kids about the Lord. Now, of course, having, having set times um, to do that with our kids can be a help, you know, and our current family situation, I've, just, I've found it most recently to be the best time to sit down with the kids just before bedtime. And that's become one of our routines right now. But 
<clears throat> this passage, it includes an element of spontaneity, doesn't it? Right? Throughout the day, as you're on your way, as opportunities arise, um, you're to be a walking interpreter for your children so that they more and more begin to see the world as it really is through the lens of Scripture. That's what the Shema is saying. It's what it's calling us to. And Jesus, Jesus says that it is out of the overflow of the heart that our, our mouth speaks. And so, parents, you know, it's challenging. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching first and foremost to myself here, okay? It is worth asking ourselves, what do we talk about most naturally when we are with our kids? What, what, do, we, what do we talk about most with, with our children? What, what is the overflow of your heart when you're with them? What just comes up in daily conversation? What are our kids hearing from us? And, and what are they seeing in us? Let it be, by the grace of God, the mighty deeds of the Lord. Let his good commandments be on our lips and, and let our lives be a testimony that we really believe his commandments are good, that they're sweeter than honey. This is a privilege and it is a responsibility that God gives to parents. But if we're honest, we have to confess that it is easily ignored and overlooked today. We, again, we, we, give, our, we give our time and our energy and our resources to the pursuit of many, many other concerns, don't we? We want our kids to have a good education. You know, we want our kids to maybe be really good at a sport or some particular activity. We want them to have good friends and good connections. We want them to be smart and successful. I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but, but in comparison, how, when we look at our conversation, and our time, how much do we want them to know God and cherish his commandments. See, how you choose to spend your time with them, the things that you prioritize and what you talk to them about is the answer to that question. In the Shema, God, God demands our everything. And we, we really, we need to learn and we need to, we need to know it deep down that this is not a harmful commandment. In fact, this is a life-giving word from, from the Lord. We, we need to learn that the God who demands our everything has, has already given us more than that and truly does want what is best for us. Now, how can we know that? How can we know that the God who demands our everything has already given us more than everything and truly wants what's best for us? This is how. Because the words of Deuteronomy 6 are the very words of the one who left heaven. The very words of the one who became a slave to set captives free. Triumphing over all the powers, all the evil that exists in the world and that lurks within our own hearts. These are the words of the one who came and assumed our flesh to give himself for us. 
in order that we might be his, in order that he might be ours. And we need to understand that if God gives that much to be our God, and if grace is really that deep and wide, and if we really, if we had eyes to see the height and the width and the depth of God's love for us in Christ, then we will know that this command does not in any way deprive us of anything. And if we understand that the Lord is one and that there is no other, then, then we'll understand that there is not a square inch of our lives that God does not intend to redeem and claim as king. There is no nook or cranny of yourself that he does not want to transform and bless and strengthen and use for his name's sake. And this is true whether you're five or 50 years old. This is true for all of God's people. The Lord is one. There is no other. He is God over all. He is God over all of you. And I don't mean over all of you corporately. I'm talking about over all of you individually. Over everything that makes you, you. God is God of all of it. And he's given his very self to be your God. And with him as your God, you are already the recipient of more than everything. And so you can give yourself wholly and entirely and unreservedly in love to him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this remarkable passage which speaks of the greatest commandment and the greatest gift. We marvel how in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ you have given yourself for our sake, that we might be your people forever. And we stand amazed at the fact that we can speak these words, that you are our God and that you would name such a people as us as your own. Thank you for your grace to us. Help us to understand how much you love us and care for us. And help us to understand that this command is not burdensome, but it is a blessing. Because it unifies all of our lives and orders our lives to what we were made for. And that is a relationship with you. And so help us to live to that end. That your name would be honored in our lives. And that your people would be blessed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.